Policing Australia, the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. Good evening. There's a major search and rescue operation underway off Perth's northern beaches tonight after a boat was discovered spinning out of control with no skipper on board. Police in Tasmania are searching for a missing bushwalker in Lake St Clair National Park. SES crews are conducting a ground search while a helicopter searches the area for any sign of the man. The mother of two boys who went missing during a bushwalk with their grandfather has revealed she didn't think she'd see them ever again. Search and rescue teams found the trio in thick bushland. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you, Edna. I'm speechless. I didn't think they'd come home, to be honest, to tell you. The boys and their grandfather were winched to safety after a day-long search. Police have found the body of a woman who'd been missing in central Australia for more than two weeks. On a cattle station property south of Alice Springs, police located the body. There was thanks for the hard work done by emergency crews in the searing heat. My parents, brothers, Melinda and I, extend our gratitude to the Northern Territory Police for their skillful investigation that allowed the search area to be focused correctly, enough to find our missing loved ones. Welcome to the May 2021 episode of Policing Australia, the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. I'm Jason Burns. Search and rescue is commonly referred to within the emergency service industry as SAR. It has been a role undertaken by Australian Police for almost as long as the institution itself has existed. The first recorded example of Australian police being involved in what we would now call a SAR operation occurred in September 1834, where police helped look for a missing man, Dr Robert Wardell. His murdered body was found in what was then rural Perdisham. Police then searched for and found his murderers, three escaped convicts. Two of the convicts were subsequently hanged for the murder. The following year, in March 1835, government botanist Richard Cunningham went missing on an expedition at the Bogan River near what is now called Burke. Police and others unsuccessfully searched for the man. It was later discovered he had likely fallen from his horse and been tended to by local Aboriginals. A subsequent falling out with the tribe resulted in his murder. In the 20th century, Australian police became more routinely involved in searches and rescues for missing or lost people. While some of the police forces formed dedicated units to coordinate major searches, most tackled the task on an ad hoc basis. Results were mixed at best and heavily reliant upon the skills, interests or aptitude of local police officers and supporting groups. Over the last 30 years or so, there has been a dramatic enhancement in the science and professionalisation of how search and rescue operations are coordinated. There are now national standards with broadly similar methodologies across the jurisdictions in Australia and New Zealand. In this episode, we're going to talk with Senior Sergeant Jim Whitehead of the Queensland Police Service. Sergeant Whitehead has been with the Queensland Police for almost 40 years and he's currently the State Search and Rescue Coordinator and Training Officer. He has over 32 years of experience in conducting, training for, coordinating and reviewing search and rescue operations. Thanks for joining us, Jim. The exact role of police officers playing search and rescues tends to vary depending on the circumstances of a particular incident, but police are almost always involved, especially in land operations. Why is that? Um, There's actually an intergovernmental agreement which all the state's police ministers signed uh, the last time I was signed was 2007. It actually says that police have responsibility within each of the state's jurisdictions to undertake SAR. So that's land SAR, marine SAR and aviation SAR within our capabilities. So not so much a legislative, but it's a legal obligation for us. So in Australia, there is a standardised search and rescue system? 
Actually, we are very well placed in the world because uh, even though we're, we're a heap of separate states, we actually have one SAR manual and we all do SAR in the same manner. So I could go to WA and do a SAR and just still fit in with their system. So we actually have a, a pretty much unified SAR system for Australia. There are some obviously local nuances with each state and a little bit of terminology, but basically we all do exactly the same thing, which is gratifying considering we have a lot of trouble with other things, getting all the states to agree. Jim, can you explain the history and the role of the Unified National SAR Manual and the SAR system itself? Yep, yep. It's had a fairly convoluted history, I suppose, but there was never any manual up until about 1953 for Landsar when the Civil Defence Force developed the Landsar Manual. So it was fairly old, but after Malu SAR, which happened in 2005, there was a need to look at our national manual very closely. So uh, in, in 2008, I wrote the National Land Manual, which updated the old 1953 version and then in uh, 2016 we actually merged all the manuals together to make one national SAR manual so it's really a reflection of all the SAR knowledge in the nation is reflected in our national SAR manual it it is a guide on how to do SAR but it's also I suppose a book on variances and options to undertake the job because as you can imagine every SAR is slightly different so one way doesn't fit everywhere but the, the manual is the collection of our knowledge nationally. And you mentioned the Marusara incident of 2005. What was that? It was in the Torres Straits in October of 2005, where five people drowned because uh, we didn't actually do a SAR as fast as we should have done. We, we probably took it a little bit more casual. And as a result of that, you can imagine there was a fairly intense inquest into it. And there were some faults identified in the SAR system, and the manual was one of them that had been amended so many times that some amendments would contradict other amendments, so it had to have a, a fairly close look at it, which we did. Apart from the manifestly obvious geographic differences between land and sea, what are the particular challenges to both types of SAR operations in terms of locating lost people? Well, you can imagine in a sea environment, anybody who's fallen overboard or in a boat that's underpowered or adrift is is pushed by the wind and the currents. So generally, it's a fairly mathematical problem as to where they would go. Uh, in a land situation, someone who's lost can go virtually any way they like. They're not guided by any wind or currents. They're guided by a little bit by the layout of the land and they're funneled into certain places. But basically, the, the biggest difference is that in a marine environment, we're only searching the surface. We, we can't actually search under it and very few of our marine people float above the water but in the land environment it's three-dimensional so we're we're looking up we're looking down we're looking left we're looking right people say one is harder than the other i I don't tend to agree i think they both got their own difficulties but we we tackle them pretty much the same way nowadays we've done a lot of work to make sure that the, the terminology and the methodology is pretty much the same and and the outcomes are really good we actually find a lot more people than we don't find So for maritime search and rescues, you can plot where a missing person or vessel should be after it's reported missing, assuming it stays on top of the water? Yeah, we can. We can do it manually, the old-fashioned way where you see people using parallel rules and charts, which um, we still teach in Queensland. Or you can do it electronically. The Joint Rescue Coordination Centre in Canberra has their own in-house Nexus program which does it, and we have a, a SAR map problem which was basically designed for oil pollution drifting, but it works the same for people. So we can do an electronic forecast. Obviously, that's based on the Bureau of Meteorology's forecast of the weather too, and that can be a little bit touch and go sometimes. But within you know within reasonable parameters, we can work out where the drift would be for the next 72 to 96 hours. Jim, can you explain what lost person behaviour is? Yep, yep, lost person behaviour. Robert Costa wrote the first book in 2008, 
which was really good. He went through 32 different categories of lost people and worked out basically what they tend to do in generalised format. And in 2010, we worked out that Australians tend to do a little bit different to our Northern Hemisphere cousins. So we started the Australian Lost Person database. And what it is basically is gathering all the evidence of all the lost people. And let's take kids one to three, for example. We work out how far they've wandered before they are found, what the tendencies were, and those sort of stuff. So we come up with a whole set of characteristics and strategies for lost kids. And uh, we have 14 categories in Australia. And, and basically what it says, if, if I had a, a little three-year-old who was lost, then 80, 80% of them are found within 2.1 kilometres of where they are last seen. So that gives us a good start point. Things like that, uh, they do tend to seek shelter if they're tired. They're very small, so they're hard to find. Dogs are useful. So there's a whole heap of strategies. And the wonderful thing about lost person behaviour is that humans are basically like sheep. We tend to do the same thing under the same stresses. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So hikers do pretty much similar things. Climbers do similar things. People who are despondent or suiciders do similar things. It's not a perfect system by any means, but it does give us somewhere to start and gives us a, a relatively small statistical circle in which to, to initiate a search. So it's, it's about 80 to 90% successful. Obviously, there are people outside with any statistics. There's always someone who does something you don't expect, but it's a good place to start. And is that database updated regularly or is it fixed on a point of time? No, we continually get data, but I go through it every two years and I update the manual based on the changes. Uh, sometimes there's no changes because nothing happens. Other times, like despondencies, we were really close for a few years and then suddenly we did a lot of people who suicided who made a, a concerted effort to hide. So our stats went out, but I do believe in the next round of changes later this year, the, the distances will come back again. So it's, a, it's an evolving document. And uh, you can imagine with COVID now, there are a lot more people you know, holidaying within our local area. So there's a lot more bushwalkers. So uh, our stats will change again based on the number of people and what people do. Can we talk through some case studies to see how these factors play out? I suppose the one that everyone does remember is Daniel Malcolm. And, uh, you know, he disappeared in 2003 and we found his remains in 2011. That that was a result of, obviously, we, we all know about the sting involved, but there was a, a considerable amount of searching there because he didn't actually tell us exactly where Daniel would be found. So we had to do some searching and, and based on, well, he didn't actually fit into any lost person category because he was actually just waiting for a bus and got abducted there. But based on what we do know about people and offenders there, we end up searching the entire macadamia plantation and we found his his remains in a little area where he was actually dumped. Well, we know eventually he was dumped in there. And so we could find some slivers of bone, which eventually were DNA'd and were able to return back to his family. So, But that involved about 68,000 man hours of SES time scouring about 500 tonnes of uh, sand and overburden within the area just to identify some pieces of Daniel. And uh, if you can imagine, it was in a pine forest. So every pine kernel looks like a tooth. The poor old forensic people were, were pretty well inundated with things that may have looked like bone and that, but they did a fantastic job and whittled down about 10,000 items down to about two dozen. You touched on a few things there, particularly the State Emergency Service or the SES. What's their role in the search? Police do the searching, so we do the coordination role and do the logistics and the organising, but as you can imagine, police have got so many other functions to do. We, we, it's physically not possible for us to do the searching all the time. So we do rely heavily on SES, and SES are volunteers in the community. They come out, they're actually taught how to do land searching, so how to look left, look right, identify things, how to stand in line, how to make sure they do a thorough search. So we couldn't do it without them. We have about 6,000 SES in Queensland, and we would be calling them 
Well, we do three searches every day in Queensland on average, so we'll be calling them every single day of the year. And the other side in the marine environment is the uh, Volunteer Marine Rescue and the Australian Volunteer Coast Guard. So they do pretty much the same thing, but do it on vessels. So we have 47 bases in Queensland for Volunteer Marine. And so if we have a, a marine incident, we have a lot of volunteers who will come out and actually do the hard back and forward type searching that you see on the news every night. And which police units tend to contribute to search and rescue operations? Well, the obvious one would be the dog squad, I suppose. They came out and try and help us out with their with their dogs. A little bit different to what their dogs are trained for. Just normally they're trained for tracking from a, a scene of a crime, whereas in some cases we actually don't have a start area or it's already been degraded because some of our searches have already been through there, so there are difficulties. But we also have uh, police air wing with their helicopters. They have a great range of night vision gear or, or FLIR, which is heat-seeking apparatus. Uh, we have the divers. We use them a lot. We have a lot of dams in Queensland, and unfortunately a lot of children end up in dams, so the divers do a lot of work for us. Traffic branch are great for running roads and tracks. General duties police do a lot of work. So virtually there'd be no part of the service that would not be involved. Forensics often come out scenes of crime for things we find and they determine whether it's uh, legitimate or not to our case. Because it's not always live people we're looking for either. It's sometimes you know deceased people from homicide or just people that have been disappeared historically for a long period of time. But almost everybody within the service would have a role within a SAR at some stage. So what portion of search and rescues result in a person being found alive as opposed to being found deceased, if found at all? Yeah, if we if we take Queensland, and it would be a, a probably a fairly good representation of it, we, we look for about 2,000 people a year on average for SAR. And this is not including, you know, like runaway children. This is people that are lost to fall overboard on boats, suicides, dementia people and that. So it's about 2,000 a year. And on average, we find between 40 and 50 of those deceased. And there's about 20 to 30 that we don't actually find. So it's about 1% we don't find at all. And just over 2% that we find deceased. And generally those ones we find deceased are suicides, as you can imagine. That's what they're there for. People who fall out of boats. Uh, in a marine world, generally if we don't find you in the first 24 hours, there's very limited chance of us finding you because you sink to the ocean and there's a, a lot of marine predators out there, unfortunately. Humans aren't really at the top of the food chain in that sort of world. So uh, we have limited time for there. But no, the majority of people we find alive and I'm, I'm pretty certain they're pretty happy that we do. Absolutely. Another example is a sad case in 2011 when a young boy committed suicide in far north Queensland. It took around 12 weeks to find his body. What were the challenges surrounding that operation? Well, the challenges first up was that Cyclone Yazi was uh, smashing cans in that part of Queensland, so the place was flooded all over the place. And he was reported as a missing child, and there were a lot of similarities between him and, and uh, Daniel Morgan. So I think originally they were thinking that maybe he'd been abducted. He was a you know, relatively good-looking young fellow, was last seen getting off a bus outside his house and then he disappeared entirely. So it, it wasn't it didn't involve us initially because it wasn't considered that he was a lost or or a person in need of assistance. So we didn't actually get involved. We did a couple of little searches, but we didn't really get involved until about week twelve. You know, homicide had run out all our inquiries. There was no evidence to suggest he'd been abducted or murdered or anything, so it would fall back to Assar. So we ended up doing some searching at about week 12, and you could imagine that uh, he came from a little place called Macon's Beach, just north of Cairns. If he was in someone's backyard, then we would have expected within those 12 weeks that someone would have found him. So when we did start searching, we looked at places where no one frequented, where the opportunity of a body being there for ages undisturbed would be fairly high. So a lot of areas around Macon's Beach. There's also a lot of sugarcane plantations around there, but they'd already been harvested. So there was probably no chance of us finding him if he was in a harvested cane field. 
And uh, what it turned out was that once we did all our search and there was only one little area left and that was on Bar Creek and Bar Creek's tidal, but it also has crocodiles in it. So we ended up having to get the divers up for that. So they did a, a search after doing a crocodile survey first. They did a search on the Tuesday through the mangroves and found nothing. And uh, it's a funny thing about people who suicide, they generally do it on terrain interfaces. That's where vegetation types sort of change. And so we moved to the Melalutas on the Wednesday morning and at about midday on the Wednesday, they found his noose in the tree and, and his remains laying on the ground in amongst the tidal mangroves there. And you know, crocodiles have been through there, but I don't think they actually disturbed his body. They're not really fussed on on rotten meters. Uh, most people think they do like. Well, yeah, we did find his body. So that's week 13. Most people who suicide do it in a place that has some significance to them. And, and we weren't sure about that initially, but where he was found, was on a track that he and his friends used to gather, you know, most afternoons. So it had some significance to him, but it was actually only 350 metres from his house. That, that was inside our lost person circle, which was at that time two kilometres. So statistically it worked out well, but, you know, sad for the family because it took a while to find him, purely because he wasn't, I, I suppose, a person considered lost initially. But uh, at the end of the day, it was a really good search. DNA was used to identify his, his remains and he was able to be returned to his family. So I think that's a really big thing in SAR, that returning something back to the family is, is really a bonus because it stops that wondering you know, what actually happened to my family member. And, you know, talking to the, the Morton family there, the eight years they went through the torment of not knowing, but probably suspecting, you know, that if we can remove, I've returned something, it's far beneficial. And then those occasions where we can't return anything, which uh, which really makes me sad sometimes because, you know, our job is to protect life and property and, and just sometimes we can't do that. How do you deal with the impact of those types of jobs? I'm lucky, I suppose, because I don't actually do any searching anymore. I'm only here to provide advice and to review them and, and that sort of stuff. So I don't come for the face-to-face anymore. But I, I suppose at the end of the day, because I look after the system, a little bit of me dies every time we don't find somebody. You know, And I, I take it personally because I train everybody up here. And, and you know, there's sometimes we just can't find people. Or they, they've just done something that makes it impossible to find them. But it doesn't stop the fact that you know we, we, we get, I suppose, searches remorse or searches grief that, uh, you know, with a search that, uh, you know, has no outcome. And that's a really big sticking point with a lot of searches. A lot of people don't uh, don't consider that as anything, I suppose. But, you know, we have people who have gone their entire career who've never not found somebody, and then it, it knocks them around when they don't find somebody. But I also have a couple of people who have never actually found anybody, despite doing really good searches. So, it's a, yeah, it's a funny job. And the organisation provides support to police? Yeah, we do, yeah. Yeah, it's not just for us. We have our usual systems, you know, the, uh, the chaplains and the PSOs and that sort of stuff. But even through volunteers, you know, whether it's through us or through their volunteer systems, there is a lot of counselling available nowadays. And you imagine a lot of times volunteers are the ones that come across our, our missing people and they're not always in pleasant condition. So it is traumatising. You know, a lot of time you can't unsee what you see. So we do go down that route fairly often now. And it's, it's part of a normal debrief that we ask people to, you know, there's no stigma attached, or well, there probably is a little bit, but not as much as there used to be stigma attached to now not feeling too good after a SAR. So uh, we try to take care of it. But we also, prior to doing a SAR, if we think we're going to look for someone who might be a little bit uh, little bit smelly or whatever, we do give people the opportunity of not having to do it. Police have to do it, obviously, but volunteers, if you don't want to do it, then I don't think there's a need for you to do it. Let's talk about a good news case. A couple of years ago, a 22-year-old South Korean national went missing on a mountain adjacent to the town of Tully in the far north. She was found six days later. What happened there? Yeah, she was a, a young Korean who was over here picking bananas up at Tully. 
And on this particular day, she decided to go for a walk up Mount Tyson. Mount Tyson's just outside Tully, if uh, you don't know where it is. And there's only one track to the top of Mount Tyson, but it's 687 metres high, so it's not an easy track. And unfortunately, she did go up there. She took no water or no food with her, but she wasn't actually noticed missing for five days. Uh, she was staying at a backpackers hostel, so I'm not real sure about how how her friends would feel but um, no one actually noticed her missing but uh, when she was noticed missing and was actually reported to us we were thinking you know had she actually been murdered so detectives were doing some inquiries but also we managed to go through her social media and we found some Instagram pictures that she took one on the way up Mount Tyson and one at the top of Mount Tyson so the last confirmed sighting of her was at the top of Mount Tyson so we actually started a search there the next day and we, we searched all the way to the top, either side of the track, and not many SES in the Tully area, so we exhausted them on the first day. And on day two, we managed to get some people from the Jungle Warfare Centre at the base of Mount Tyson, and we did a search up there. And we found her that day, but it was purely by... No, I'm not going to say by accident, because we put the searches in the right place, but what they did was what Dewey had done. On the way back down, Dewey had mistaken a creek bed for a track so she's followed the creek down then she slipped and she knocked herself out and uh, so these soldiers were doing the same thing so they've sort of wandered off the track following a creek bed and then they, they heard her crying out for help and this was like you know day six and she's clinging to the side of the rocks where she'd fallen down a little bit and uh, she'd been clinging there for several days and she thought she would die very hard to see from the air because of the rainforest, but the soldiers managed to clear the area and get her winched out. We got the, the helicopter out to winch her out. But uh, according to our medical experts, she was absolutely lucky given her small frame, her lack of fat to sustain her. But uh, where she did fall down, there was water. So we all know Tully's fairly wet. So she had a good adequate supply of water, even though you know, she didn't have anything else there. But very, very lucky I suppose and uh, she did broke a tooth and she had some marsh from concussion and that but very very lucky girl the search was really well done the two SAR coordinators had to be commended for it because they rolled out really really fast and did exactly as they should and as a result of that they put people in the right place and Dewey was found I've been to Tully it's very beautiful but normally very very wet the temperature is warm during the day but cold at night especially high up on the mountains in your experience what's the longest someone can survive without food water and warm clothing we normally work on the 333 rule, three minutes for air, three days for water and three weeks for food. And technically you can survive for three weeks without food as long as you've got adequate water. But that doesn't take into account the heat and, and all those sort of things. Uh, we have had some searches where we found people after 18 days and on the face where you think, well, that's incredible. But when you look at some background things there, I, I think they were using searches as a means to perhaps get some money out of things like Woman's Day and, and New Idea and that sort of stuff, because the backgrounds doesn't work. But we have had some Ricardo Sarutis on Morton Island in 2005. He did actually manage to survive for 10 days. And their medical advice initially was six days, because there's very little fresh water on Morton Island. And then it rained on the Sunday and the Monday he was missing, and their medical advice suggested he could possibly last for 10 days. So we're thinking, oh, we've got 10 days to search. And we found him. We found absolutely nothing for the first nine days. We searched, you know, lots and lots of places, and uh, we found nothing. So we sort of doubt what we're doing here. But on day ten, in quick succession, we found a hat, a sandal, and we found him about eleven o'clock in the morning. And he was absolutely at the end of his tether. He wouldn't have lasted the night. He was so dehydrated. What he was, he was relying on one tree that was collecting the morning mist and giving him a slurp of water every morning. It's a little bit like his Wilson for uh, 
the Castaway movie, he tried to leave that tree several times, but he was psychologically tied to it. He was only about 300 metres from the beach, and he was, an on, was on an island too, so he could have walked in any direction at any time. He would have come to the coast, and we would have found him quite easily. But uh, he was in a sand dune system, and these sand dunes run parallel to each other, and they're amazing things in that they're bone dry, but they're also sound dampening. So you could be in a dune system next door, and you can't hear a single thing outside your dune system. We did get criticised a little bit because why didn't we just go there? But there's hundreds of dunes and we had to search them systematically. And you imagine walking through dunes, they're very hard to walk through. Well, we were covering them and we're getting there. And as, as I said, it was on day 10 where we actually come across his dune system. So as part of the plan, he was right on target with uh, the medical advice. So uh, it was a really good search. He was very grateful, obviously, and donated a considerable amount of money to the SES because we actually pretty much exhausted all our SES resources in the Brisbane area. And we did rely on the army in the last few days that uh, it was a really good search. So that's about the longest legitimate one that we've had. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, one of the questions that comes to mind is logistics. How much ground can searches cover in a day? Well, basically, we can search about a square kilometre every three hours. And that's obviously dependent on whether it's rainforest or, or sandy country or open country. If I was out of Winton, then I could search the area a lot faster because it's a lot fatter, uh, flatter with um, lack of vegetation. Up at O'Reilly's where it's all rainforest or Mount Tyson, it takes a lot longer to search. But then we also have the, the thing that if it's impossible for the SES to get through, then it's probably impossible for a missing person to get through. So we have some decent boundaries in that respect. But we generally work on, we could do several kilometres or square kilometres every day for a search. We don't have to search every single area in most times because there are a lot of land features that actually funnel people in particular directions whether they like it or not particularly valleys and and creek lines and that so we can limit some of our searching but obviously if we don't find them doing that we have to come back and search all those areas that we initially discarded but it's a slow process and as you can imagine it's very labor intensive helicopters and planes are used quite commonly in search and rescue operations these days how useful are they in the search phase Helicopters are interesting because they, they do have the ability to cover large areas. But uh, again, if, if they can't see the ground, then they can't see you. So searching in rainforests is a little bit problematic, but doing large open paddocks is, is uh, absolutely magnificent with a helicopter. And that's the same as when they use their forward-looking infrared. Infrared's a, a heat-seeking thing, but they need to be able to see the target to be able to do that. I get a lot of lost people say, well, I saw the helicopter. Why couldn't they see me? Well, you're looking at a helicopter, which is fairly large. And they're looking for you, which is fairly small. So it doesn't actually work that way. Winching out is magnificent. They can do that. Uh, and that's a great asset for us for medical rescues. Aircraft, you think normally they fly too fast to be very used to us. But we have three Challenger jets in Australia and they have magnificent heat seeking capabilities. So generally we use them at night time and they can fly over a search area and they do a, a night circle search because flying at 800 knots, you're not going to be over an area for very long so they do very big slow circles but they they train their camera in the middle of the search area so we just slowly drift through the search area and what it does is identify uh, all the heat sources at night time and they can differentiate between animals and people and what it does for us it might give us two or three heat sources that we can go and investigate then which you know often becomes our target following on from that in situations where people aren't found can you talk through what's involved in making the heart-wrenching decision to stop a search? All right. It's actually coincidental, I suppose. I was only thinking about this the other day because I had to do my 316th termination since I've been doing this role, which is a lot. But what we do is we rely heavily on medical advice as to how long a person can survive, and that obviously takes into account you know, 
health and, and uh, height and weight and food availability and that sort of stuff. And then we looked at what we've searched and whatever the medical opinion is, we always go for three days longer. So if our doctor says they can last for five days, we'll search for eight to allow a little bit of leeway in there. But yeah, we, you're right. We get to a point in time where the search becomes impossible because we've either exhausted everywhere to search, we have no resources left, or the search area becomes too large. So what we do is we do a, a quick review of the search. But when I say quick, I mean, I suppose facetiously, because we go back over the entire search and look at all the intel. Uh, have we used it correctly? Have we searched the right area? Have we searched it to an extent where I'd be happy? And we, we come to a consensus and we do a termination form in Queensland, which takes into account all those and, and puts it down on paper. And then it goes up to our on-call on deputy commissioner. And they're the ones that make the, the decision in the end, but it's generally based on our recommendation. So we don't do it lightly. There are some searches where we don't actually terminate them for a considerable period because we always go back and have another look because um, you know, there's some things that we, we haven't covered off initially or I want to recover. But it, it is a, a big call at the end of the day. But even though we use the word termination, the termination is basically there's no chance of your target being alive anymore. But we, as police, we have an obligation and they're all our coroner's acts to locate deceased people. So we don't actually stop but the actual chances of us finding them alive are, are zero then. So uh, like I said, I've done 316 now, which is sad because you know, there's 316 bodies we couldn't find. But at the end of the day, we, do, we don't get criticised for doing the search. Uh, we search as well as we can and, and we're only humans. Uh, the, the, if someone's done something that puts them in a place where we can't find them, then there's, you know, there's, to our best uh, ability, we just can't find them. You have a couple of other unique case studies. The first is a Mr. Morris Shutter who went missing after falling into a lake while riding on an inflatable Lilo device. And the second is the sinking of the vessel FV Diane in 2017. Uh, would you mind talking through those cases? Morris was interesting because we actually did finish the search. He, he went missing in Lake Eacham, which is a fairly confined area. It's a, a very deep volcanic um, crater sort of thing full of water. Uh, and we did search there for uh, well, six days, searching around the lake. No sign he got out of the lake. All the witnesses said he fell off his lilo and sank straight away. So we're pretty certain he drowned in the lake. So our searching after six days, we terminated because there was probably no chance of finding him alive. And we don't have the ability to search down to 67 metres and there's no no divers, no police divers in Australia that can do that. But what happened was about 14 months after he did disappear, something happened in Lake Eacham. It burped a little bit and uh, disturbed the bottom and, and Morris was able to actually float to the surface eventually and that's where we recovered him. So we, we never actually give up, but sometimes we just reach that point where we, we're not going to find a live person. And the Diane... Well, it was uh, a little bit different, I suppose, because it was a, a fishing vessel with seven divers on board and uh, it rolled over. Reuben Dorman was the only one who managed to get out and he sat on the hull for six hours until the boat actually sunk underneath him. And then he had to swim for another six hours before he was found by a passing yacht. So uh, by the time the alarm was raised, the incident already happened like 12 hours previous. And then we had no actual idea where the vessel was because Reuben had sat on the hull upturned the whole while it drifted and then he swam around in the water for another six hours so the exact location was difficult to identify to start with so we did some some uh, calculations to work out where he may have drifted from 
And then we had the side stand for the area. And we actually found the vessel. Once we found the vessel, then we could start a search proper. Divers did manage to go down and recover two people that were inside it. But four people, it appears, had managed to get out of the vessel, but never made it to the surface. And despite a nine-day search, and it was a very intensive search, despite that, we did find a, a few bits of flotsam and jetsam that did wash ashore. But unfortunately, we never found anybody else at all. Yeah, that's amazing. As you say, the ocean has the ability to just suck everything up. It does. And uh, it's, you know, you look at an atlas and uh, about three quarters of the world is ocean and it's a big area. Jim, what type of training do police in Queensland undertake to become search and rescue coordinators? All right. Well, there is a, a, a national standard and we did that through the Australian New Zealand Police Advisory Agency. So every state trains to the same level. Queensland is the only state that has a uh, nationally recognised qualification. So we issue the diplomas and advanced diplomas in search and rescue, but every state trains to a, a similar level. To be a SAR coordinator in Queensland, you have to be a police officer for a couple of years first. And then you put in and come and do a SAR course. There are a couple of prerequisites that you have to be able to read a map or a chart, have some knowledge about operations, briefings and debriefings. But basically, you come along and do a three-week face-to-face course with us and we teach you the basics of SAR and then you go away for a year and sort of like an apprenticeship, I suppose, you do a couple of live SARs under the mentorship of a, a more senior person. And once you've done that and met some evidence requirements, you obtain a diploma. And then about five years after that, you can get invited along for advanced diploma. And an advanced diploma is basically gives you the skills to review a SAR. So not so much the coordination, but looking at someone else's SAR on behalf of the coroner. Other states do similar courses. And at a national level, we do the National Police Search and Rescue Managers course, which is probably the base level for all the states for for those people going on to senior roles in SAR. But the good thing is that we all do pretty much the same thing, and that's based around the NATSAR manual. And that uh, you know, I could go to any state and I would understand the processes behind what they do. Um, good thing about us in Queensland is that uh, because we're the only state that does nationally recognised quals, I do get a lot of other interstate people on our courses. So the, the system is basically the same everywhere. And it's a, it's a really, it's a credit, I suppose, to all the individual police services that we've adopted this way. I assume most of your police undertake these duties on a part-time basis, called in from their substantive duties when required? Um, in Queensland, yeah, I'm the only one that does it full-time. Everyone else is part-time. So all my SAR coordinators, and I've got about 300 of them, they're general duty police or traffic police or, or things like that. Other states like New South Wales and Victoria have a dedicated search and rescue group. So they do the majority, but they still rely on general duty police to initiate things and to do you know background inquiries. And most other states do it as a part-time basis. It, it would be ideal if we had full-time SAR squads in every state or a national one, but Australia is so large. Like Queensland, we, you know, we, we looked at that, but to have a SAR squad in Brisbane, you couldn't get them to anywhere else in the state you know, within 24 hours in most cases because there's just no way of doing that. So the way we do it now is a little bit, seems like it's clunky, but there's nowhere in Queensland that I can't get a SAR coordinator within two hours of an incident occurring. So uh, the system works really well. But uh, the downside, I suppose, is that individual SAR coordinators might only do one SAR a year. And so, uh, you know, confidence levels and that. But that's why I'm here at the end of the phone all the time, provide advice, guidance, look at maps, charts for them and uh, to make them feel like they're doing the right thing. So, you know, everywhere, slightly different, but all using the same rules. Every now and then we hear of a search being reactivated after having earlier been terminated. Often it's the result of police obtaining new information. Occasionally it's because of a court order or direction. 
Can you discuss the logistics and the issues SAR coordinators have to think through in these cases? A lot of the time, um, it depends on the SAR incident, we might use the original coordinator because they have uh, lots of knowledge and a feel for the area and go back. But stars are reactivated through lots of different means. Sometimes it's because of uh, drought. We've had a couple of people located because of drought and it's decimated forest that we couldn't search before. So we've gone back and that's been self-initiated. There have been occasions where we've had the opportunity to go back and find people. O'Reilly's was one of those cases where the National Parks Rangers managed to find a bone. So we reinitiated a search that was 16 months after the, the gentleman went missing. Sometimes information comes in through Crime Stoppers or, or Triple O that someone does recall something or did see something. So we'll go out and initiate a search. And as you said, homicides are you know, maybe years afterwards when they find an offender or, or get some information or, or that. And we go out and do searches for clandestine graves or, or bodies that were just dumped in the ocean. So there's lots of different things. There's, there's no real different logistical way we do it. We, we treat it as a SAR and uh, we plan for it. Some of these historical ones are good in that they're not time critical. So we do have a bit more time to make all the arrangements properly as opposed to someone who went missing right now and we just roll out as best we can. So, uh, yeah, we do it a lot, different reasons. But, um, it's, it's never been a problem at all. We're, we're quite happy to do that. And as, as I said, you know, there's nothing worse than not being able to find somebody. So going back two or three times is, is really something we do as many times as we can. Are there any cold cases which stand out in your mind? Well, Declan Crouch, you could call him a cold case because the 13 weeks afterwards. Heather Edgerton, when we found her body, she'd been murdered. We didn't find a body for seven days. I'm trying to think which ones are historic. We found five two years ago, but they were found by stockmen in areas that were full of lantana and stockmen just come across bones. So we actually sold five historic ones. Homicides, yeah, but a few of those are still going through the court. So we can't really talk about them till they're finished. We continually have a look at it. There are a lot of ones where we still actually haven't found anybody and we continually have a look because there's you know always new areas cropping up. There have been a few where bodies have been disposed of, and I'm talking, you know, the, the rule now that you don't get out of prison if you can't produce the body, that we've gone back for those. And we actually haven't found any bodies as a result of that. So I don't know whether the offenders don't remember where they put the body or they're just trying to, to give us a red herring. I'm not sure about that, but we've done several of those searches lately, but they haven't been very fruitful at all. That Lantana Manor with multiple bodies, it wasn't all related to one case, was it? No, no, it was actually one of them was a suicider and he was found with his... Uh, uh, he had an old Russian Kalashnikov rifle and he said he wouldn't be found. He left a note saying that you'll never find me. And in our initial searching, we didn't find him. But he'd gone so far into old scrub bushland that we just never would have got there in a search. But the drought decimated central Queensland a couple of years ago. And when stockmen were moving cattle, that you come across his remains. And that happened four or five times in one year. Um, as I said, you know, the conditions change and suddenly we get a, an opening in a in a job. And then we go. So we go back to those ones, do forensic searching around there, find as many pieces as we can and bring them in. How is search data recorded and presented in court as evidence? Yeah, we're actually moving into the 21st century. So most of our stuff is done through computers now. So we use GPSs a lot to track where all our searches are going. So we download those onto electronic maps. We still record everything the old-fashioned way on a chronological log as to when people do things. But I am encouraging more people to to keep audio logs, you know, as in hang a... Um, a tape recorder around your neck and just talk to yourself all the way through the SAR. So that could be transcribed later. But yeah, we're slowly moving into the electronic field and there are some electronic programs that have been developed by police for using SAR that record everything in a single USB stick that we can give to the coroner at some stage later on. But from a coronial point of view, 
that they're really not liking the old-fashioned maps now with our you know, crayon markings all over them. They do prefer electronic downloads as a means of showing where we've been. So, um, yeah, we're taking that on board. And it's a hard battle sometimes, just you imagine the, the connectivity for internet is not all over the place. So we have to run on standalone computers. But uh, no, that is the way we're going and we're doing it more and more that way. More and more people are carrying personal location beacons, EPIRBs and the like when they go into rural areas or at sea. I imagine this is making it easier for searches, but not in every case. No, it doesn't. Uh, EPIRBs are great in that they give us a location, but they don't actually tell us what the problem is. The use of PLBs, which are the smaller ones that hikers use in Queensland, we did about 140 activations a year of those. They come through the the Joint Rescue Coordination Centre. EPIRBs is compulsory to carry those, but uh, you imagine a vessel like the Diane, which did have an EPIRB, so it fitted the requirements, but it turned over so fast that no one was able to turn it on. As at the start of this year, the float-free EPIRBs have been compulsory, but we haven't had one of those yet, so I'm not sure how that's going to work. But sometimes things happen Things happen that fast that no one activates any of the electronic aids, but definitely when they do go off, they do take a lot of the searching out of the search and rescue. Are the devices super accurate? Oh, not, uh, not, I'm not going to say super accurate, but uh, getting better every year. And with the introduction of the, the MEO SAR system for satellites up in space, the time from detection and the actual location is coming down shorter and shorter. So it is getting down to, you know, they'll give us a, an area within 50 metres in some cases. Sometimes it might be within a kilometre. But um, 50 metres is better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. On another note, you've conducted search and rescue operations now for 32-odd years. How did you first become involved? I, I moved to Rathdowney in 1989. It's a little station on the New South Wales-Queensland border. And on the 10th of July that year, the first weekend I was there, we had three missing bushwalkers. And I didn't even know we did SAR back in those days. And I had no idea what to do. So I sought the advice of a National Park Ranger, Keith Sullivan, and he explained what he thought we should do. And over the next year or so, our, our relationship sort of morphed where he went from being my mentor to being my assistant and I started to take a, a greater role. So I did SAR for six years before I actually knew we had a SAR system because it's not, uh, it was pretty much a water police inclusive thing. And then I was told I better go away and do a SAR course. So I've been doing it since 89. I find it really interesting. I did a lot of SARs when I was at Rathdowney because it's on the New South Wales Queensland border. Lots of people go lost there. And uh, I've just continued on ever since. And, and I've got my dream job, which is what I'm doing now, looking after the state. And my interest in SAR is I suppose it goes back to them. Just I, I was one of those people who did bushwalk and never did the right thing. I never told anybody where I was going or what I was doing or anything like that. So um, I can appreciate what it's what it's like on the other side. But I, I find it's not really police work per se. I don't lock anybody up, but there is a massive satisfaction in bringing someone home who, who may otherwise would have perished because we didn't do anything. You're currently the state search and rescue coordinator and training officer. What does that role involve? Basically, I'm responsible for looking after the search and rescue system for Queensland on behalf of the the service. So I provide all the training and I provide the advice and the guidance. I do the policy and that sort of stuff. I do all the reviews or the greater majority of the reviews for the coroner. I go to coroner's court and explain the system and support our fellas. And on the other side, I I suppose I do a lot of work nationally because in Australia, I'm, I'm the only one that actually does, police officer that is, that actually just does SAR. All the other ones who do SAR, even the equivalents in my role, are, are either water police or operations unit members who have other tasks to do. But my job is purely SAR. And because of that, I've been able to you know, assist in the writing of the manuals, do a lot of training, develop programs and things like that. 
but I, I suppose through that too, I've gathered an awful lot of knowledge from SAR because I, I have my finger in lots and lots of pies that do with SAR and I, I help coroners in all the states just to look at SAR to make SAR better. Uh, and dream job, lots of freedom. Not many people understand what I do and, and they look at me and think, well, why? But when you look back and there's been a lot of people have been found because of all the people that have gone through the system, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the way we do it. You should be. What advice do you have for the police who want to be search and rescue coordinators? I'd say up front that everybody that I train, I expect to lose a lot of them because uh, at the end of the day, as I said, an individual might only do one or two SAR incidents a year, depends where they are. Water police obviously do them a lot. It's a job that you have to want to do. It's not a job where we did a lot of things from the family and a lot of people are appreciative, but when it goes bad, there's a lot of responsibility placed on you to justify why we did what we did. We have to answer to the community, to the service, to the to the coroner. So sometimes there's a, an awful lot of responsibility, more than some people want. But if you have an interest in helping the community and being involved in the community and helping our fellow person, then this is one of the best things you can do. It's one of the few parts of any policing job where we actually save lives on a daily basis, as opposed to you know, doing those things that people don't like us doing, like tickets and all that sort of stuff. So this is, you know, it's it's a a fairly good job every day. More broadly, as someone who's about to clock up four decades in policing, what advice do you have for anyone thinking about joining the police? What do you enjoy about the job and what do you find challenging? Uh, it, it's way different to what it was when I first joined because we had no computers and we still used typewriters and uh, there was no such thing as a mobile phone. But apart from one or two days where life hasn't been pleasant, I would do it at the end of the drop of a hat. It's been a, a fantastic job. I, I suppose I've been lucky because I spent most of my time out west working at one or two man stations. So I've seen I've seen and done a lot of things that the average policeman in a city wouldn't do. Lots of jobs by myself. You, you end up developing very good communication skills. You, you can't be reliant on, on the tools of the trade. So uh, I'm, I'm quite happy to sit in the gutter because everybody has a problem and once you can establish a problem and generally you can resolve most incidents. So talking is a big part of our job. And I think as, as police, we're probably losing that a little bit now. You know, we're going too electronic and we're losing the, the ability to talk to the people. And I think most people just want us out there talking to them and being visible. It's been, it's been gratifying. I, you know, I, I met my wife while I was a policeman, so she's lived my uh, you know, the last 30 years in the job. I think she's happy that I don't go out and do fights and that sort of stuff. But uh, on the same token, you know, this job can be just as stressful as working on the street at times. But if anyone's got an aptitude for doing anything in the community, I think this is the best way to do it. Before we go, is there anything else you wanted to raise? You know, I, I think people don't realise they have a SAR system that is as good as it is. And, uh, you know, everyone looks to the United States for guidance. But in reality, what we do in Australia and, uh, and our cousins in New Zealand is world class. And uh, many, many countries look to us because we do have a really good record. It's very envious. And what we do down here, you know, purely for us, we haven't pinched other stuff and we developed a system that works really well for us. And uh, I think the whole nation should be proud of the fact that we actually have a world-beating SAR system and we find a lot more people than... than you know, countries with similar populations ever do. And for a very minimal cost, we uh, return a lot of people back to their families. Thank you very much for your time, Jim. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was Senior Sergeant Jim Whitehead of the Queensland Police Service. He's written two articles for the APJ. The first, Lost Persons, Sometimes We Don't Find Them, is in the September 2015 issue. The second, Search and Rescue, The Suicide Factor, appeared in June 2016. 
Both articles can be accessed through the subscriber section at the APJ's webpage at www.apjl.com.au. If you want to subscribe to the APJ to receive each quarterly magazine, as well as access scores of digital back copies, go to apjl.com.au and click on the subscribe button. More generally, if you're interested in police rescue work in Australia, a book titled Police Rescue and Bomb Disposal, An Extraordinary History, is well worth your time. A disclaimer here, I'm the author of the book, so sure I'm biased, but it's a great read. Hard copies can be purchased through the Big Sky Publishing website. Electronic versions can be purchased through amazon.com.au. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We at the APJ look forward to bringing you another episode of Policing Australia next month. Until then, take care.